God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word, for the reality that when we gather as your people, we don't have to manufacture some news to share or some kind of series or teaching to teach through. There's nothing that we have to do or accomplish in order to, or process or think about in order to, to have a message go out that people will connect with. But instead, Lord, we see that you've revealed yourself on the pages of Scripture. You've shown to us good news that's immeasurably greater than any news that we could possibly imagine. Or we're officially at that part of our calendar year that tends to get dominated by this first full week of either talking about or attempting to make good on those pesky New Year's resolutions. And, and most, most of what I've, you know, listened to or read this past week, whether it's like passing comments on a podcast or something that I've read in passing on a blog, um, has to do with how to leverage or hack some area of your life to make good on those resolutions, right? So apply this one hack. Apply this one thing that will change everything. And, you know, YouTube feeds now are kind of dominated with these like, if you just do this one thing every day, your life has changed. And, and to be clear, I just want to, I'm not throwing shade on resolutions. Like, I do think a new calendar year is a natural and fitting opportunity to reevaluate certain things, to place renewed focus and energy on certain things. And certainly the idea of resolving toward good and godly habits actually finds its roots in Christian doctrine, the spread of Christianity in the West, Wesley's Great Awakening, and Jonathan Edwards' Great Awakening. I mean, that kind of language springs forth from Christian history. So, I'm, man, far, far be it for me to throw shade on resolutions. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to diminish its potential value. But I did notice one particular article in the Wall Street Journal this past week that took a different approach. It, it argued essentially that maybe what we should resolve to do every January 1st is to stop making resolutions. Uh, why? Because of the stress. The stress, inherently, that resolutions often create. And, you know, the article does note some interesting statistics that far more than two-thirds of these resolutions tend to be abandoned within the first month of the year. And sometimes what ends up happening is they end up leading an individual actually backward rather than forward in a given area. Like, you... You, you, you start to experience failure, and then you give up, and then you end up, like, further behind where you were when you started. So what does that lead to? A deep disappointment that's brought about by our self-reliance. Like, we, we talked a lot in Zechariah about how self-reliance always leads to disappointment. Self-reliance equals disappointment. Disappointment flows out of self-reliance. Um, so the solution to this in this Wall Street Journal article is just stop resolving. You know, just stop resolving. But listen, if we're not careful, I mean, I understand it, and I'm not entirely disagreed with that. I, I think sometimes we can, in a self-reliant way, become so obsessed about a kind of worldly transformation that it can, it can be consuming and not helpful, right? It, it can become our God, and it doesn't satisfy, and all of that, right? So, but listen, if we're not careful, the disappointment that this article touches on, rightly, related to our resolutions, can lead us to, to think, you know, that we should just be happy living however we want. You know what I mean? Like, just throw your hands up and say, well, I guess I'm not able to transform myself. Like, I've learned that year after year after year. The vast majority of these goals don't get realized or recognized, so I might as well just lose interest in transformation. 
right? Um, and and it's, this, it's disappointment that drives us to this response that leads us to be disillusioned with the idea of resolving towards something. And it's characterized by despondency, a despondent way of living, a despondent way of living that's essentially like me embracing that which causes harm instead of seeking to be rid of that which causes harm. Me embracing that which is not good for me instead of, like, just learn to be content with that, learn to be okay with that, learn to be happy, that's who you are, and, and push, instead of pushing it away and, and seeking to be rid of it. We talked about this at the front end of our series in Zechariah, actually, a lot. Our series is, is titled Good News for Disappointed People, and we talked at length about, like, do you remember what's, what are the primary reasons for disappointment? Not just in the Christian life, but life in general. Um, primary, one of the primary reasons we become so disappointed is that our expectations of what we should be able to accomplish by way of our own self-efforts, self-salvation projects, end up being like so vastly out of line with reality that we end up just throwing up our hands. You know, like coming out of exile. What happens? Believing that they could be different from previous generations of God's people, a large portion of Israel was absolutely convinced that they could just make the right reforms. They could work hard enough to follow God in obedience in ways that former generations did not. If they fasted in a certain time and in a certain way, like the delegation from Bethel showed us, right? If, if they were doing all the right things, if they made those resolutions strong enough, following exile to move forward in line with God's instructions, then God must bring his kingdom to bear. Their hard work must usher in the kingdom. After all, the prophet Jeremiah said, you know, when exile ends, after that God will use Israel to usher in his kingdom. And now, so now they're like, now we'll, we'll, we'll make sure of it. Our resolutions will demand that that happens. And we refer to this as religious moralism, the idea that if I behave a certain way, if I act a certain way, if I'm doing the right things, then God owes me a better life, right? And yet the first word of this prophet to the people, right, is, do you remember the first week together? He talks about repentance. He's like, repent. Turn away from your sin. Turn toward God. It demonstrates that they don't yet grasp the severity of their problem. They don't even know what it is. They don't grasp the severity of human sin. They didn't realize the depth of their need. They couldn't see everything that we've been talking about throughout Advent in terms of, do you remember the week before Christmas Eve? Our great need followed then by God's great answer. They couldn't grasp that first part. Our great need for God to come and do what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so from their perspective, they're trying hard enough. They're looking around and they're struggling to understand why things are the way they are why they're still surrounded by those who desire their harm, why they're still ruled over by a foreign king. So all that religious moralism leads to, for many, an irreligious fatalism in which they throw up their hands. It's despondency. You know, they're disillusioned with the re reforms, and now they embrace things that they know aren't for their good, falling in line with surrounding culture. You know, and it's, it's in the midst of this disappointment, disillusionment, despondency that we talked about in week one. Looking around and seeing things are not the way they're supposed to be, but also not understanding why the things aren't the way they're supposed to be. All this driven by their own moralistic self-reliance, you know. It's in the midst of all of that that Zechariah speaks good news to these disappointed people. And in this morning's text, we come to find so many of the themes, you know. So many of the themes that we've worked through and looked at are present here in this final chapter 
tying these things together. So maybe you're a guest or a visitor this morning and you don't, you, you don't have any context for Zechariah. That's okay, because actually this morning, I think you're going to get a good overview for what we've looked at for many of these weeks, because in this text, we come to find that the antidote to this self-help, self-reliant disappointment is ultimate dependence on something outside of us that actually has the power to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. See, the answer isn't just like depending on something outside of us. It's not just saying like, all right, I can't transform myself, so I have to find something out there that can, because we do that all the time. Like, there are a lot of good things in this world that God gave us for our good that we rely on to become our ultimate thing, to become our means of transformation. But that thing, you know, it can't satisfy. It's not, it doesn't actually lead to transformation either. So it's not, just, it's not just ultimate dependence on something outside of us. It's ultimate dependence on something outside of us that actually has the power to do that, to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. So the title of this sermon this morning is From Self-Reliant Disappointment to Gospel-Shaped Dependence. This is really, I think, the core of Zechariah. and is what he's teaching us. I think this is how chapter 14 ties this all together for us. From self-reliant disappointment, you know, religious moralist disappointment, to gospel-shaped dependence. All right, so Zechariah, here's how he does this in 14. He desires to reestablish our trust in God as the true source of our transformation. And he does this by focusing on four theological realities. What do I mean by, what's a theological reality? Well, the very nature of these theologies has to do with how we interact with God. Like, who am I and who is God? And what has God done? And why should that matter to me, right? So four realities, four theological realities, all of which echo back to us what we've seen throughout this book together And they point us forward to our series that we're going to begin next week. So, four theological realities. First we see the reality of sin. The reality of sin, verses 1 and 2. Like I said, this is a... These themes, they're not going to be new to you. Okay, we've been talking about the reality of sin like every week. Verses 1 and 2. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle... And the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So we've looked at the reality of sin in the past. In many ways, it gets amplified in these first two verses. We've seen throughout Zechariah that not only is sin so insidious and wicked that it brings about great harm and oppression, But because of that, it must face judgment. So like, if you're here this morning and and you've always kind of struggled with Christianity, and maybe one of the reasons why you've struggled with Christianity is because you've had a hard time believing that God could be a God of judgment. You know, like, how could God be a God of, of judgment? I gave a few pastoral reflections when we preached through Zechariah 6, Zechariah 9, on why the doctrine of the judgment of God is so crucial, actually. Why it's for our good. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen. But let me just, for the sake of our time together, repeat what, what Elizabeth Ochtemeyer wrote that was so helpful to me when she was writing about chapter 9. She says, The Bible is testifying to the fact that evil must be actively resisted and done away with. It does not disappear by itself. Hitler's must be made to cease their holocausts. 
Someone has got to break those swords and fashion those spears into pruning hooks. But by testifying that God is the divine warrior, the Bible is saying that the ultimate destruction of evil belongs to him. And once again, so what we find in these first two verses, in Zechariah, is the, it's the grisly reality of sin. Language that's meant to remind the readers once again of this fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. That this sinful world is predatory of people rather than protective. Like because of human sin, we always put ourselves first. Everything's driven out of selfishness. And because of our sin and selfishness, we were predatory rather than protective. That because of the depravity of our hearts, there's plundering and murder and all kinds of unspeakable predatory acts. And for justice to be done, those things have to be done away with. Like I think these verses are here to tell us, like as Optimar says, this evil is not going away on its own. And this is a different way of thinking about the world than the world has. Oftentimes we think, there is, it sounds a lot like Israel, but in our surrounding world and in our surrounding culture, we have this mentality that if we can just make the right point, if we can make the right social crime then people will stop murdering. People will but there was no reform that would cause Hitler to stop his Holocaust. Human nature has a depraved heart, Sin is not going to just disappear on its own. There is no right reform, social reform, that can bring an end to that. It needs to be brought an end to. You see that there needs to be steps taken to defeat it. And so this text begins with this day of the Lord, you know, like... People are like, why do we have to talk about the day of the Lord? This is why, like in which he gathers the nations against Jerusalem. And, and when he does that, what do we find? The wickedness of man is on full display. The grisly, dark reality of human sin is broadcasted for all to see. And we can also, therefore, see why God's judgment is so necessary. Okay? Why bringing restoration and redemption to a broken world means ridding it of this evil. Like, why the verses to follow are necessary. For our good. And again, like at the outset, right away in verse 1, this glimpse of the day of the Lord where the nations are gathered against Jerusalem sounds an awful lot like 586 BC. Like the language that's, I think, really hard for first century hearers, especially to read, are bringing back memories and stories that they've heard about Jerusalem being overthrown by the Babylonians, right? Um, and it's intentional. The idea is God's kingdom will come, and yet that coming kingdom will come at a cost to God's people because they'll endure tribulation and suffering in this world, but they endure it in this world for a present time so that God's glory might be revealed in them. That's the idea, right? Um, and inter interestingly enough, while verse 1 points their memories backward to a prior event at 586 B.C., verse 2 then points them forward to a future event because these two verses also mirror... This battle, this future battle of Gog and Magog that we find in places like Ezekiel 38, you know, in, in verse 2, the Lord says, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. In Ezekiel 38, the Lord says to the nations, I will bring you against my land. Like, the day of the Lord is paralleled with this future event that Ezekiel is referencing. And I bring this up just to say that these two verses really give us a great example of how Zechariah has operated Throughout the book, like we've talked actually a lot about this. He makes use of a past event as a way to give a picture of something yet to come. Verse 1 makes use of 586 BC, and, the, and this is what, you know, we talked about this through Revelation. John functioned this way 
in Revelation 2. He makes use of this past event that the readers would have been well aware of, they would have had context for, to, as a picture of something yet to come. So 586 BC, the collapse of Jerusalem against Babylon, Babylon itself throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament being a symbol throughout the scripture of the world order that stands against the Lord, that sees him as enemy. And he uses these images to point them forward to a battle yet to come where the nations rage against him. More on that, more on that in a bit. Yet this morning you might be discouraged at the outset. And I understand the discouragement. Like reading this text is hard to read. These first two verses, thinking that, you know, you might say, Jeremy, even if we agree that judgment is necessary, even if we agree that like, okay, granted, evil's not going to go away on its own. So perhaps the judgment of God in some capacity is necessary. Why does God allow evil to come upon his people in the ways that we read about in the scriptures? How could a good God allow for the unspeakable acts of these first two verses? And this is an understandable question, especially for those who have themselves endured unspeakable acts of evil and sin. How could a good God allow evil? You know, and initially I was thinking, well, maybe I'll just throw out some resources and move on in the text. But we aspire to be a church for skeptics. I think it's in our best interest to talk about passages like this that we come to together and that are hard to read and that we know might be stumbling blocks for friends and neighbors and coworkers who don't believe. So I want to make some remarks and, and also in this give you some, some resources. But again, for those who've endured unspeakable acts of evil, or you have loved ones who've experienced and endured hardships like this, I think rather than some philosophical explanation, what the scriptures hold out to you is an opportunity to know the heart of Jesus. His loving kindness to you. His compassion to you. That even while we might not understand it, his heartbrokenness over the evil you've suffered is real. It's real. His gentleness, coming to know Christ, who he is, the heart of Jesus. Join us next week. I would just I'd usher that invitation to you. Join us next week as we begin teaching through the gospel according to John and we get to hear about Jesus' great love for you in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your heartache. I'd invite you to meet him. Come and see, come and hear his voice. For those for whom there's been kind of a philosophical objection that's made it hard to hear. Like, I've, I've talked to a lot of skeptics that's like, I can't really get very far into theism in general, just the idea that God exists. Because I see evil in the world, you know? And like, your own scriptures testify to it. You read places like Zechariah 14, and it's there in these first two verses. There's evil that God allows, and so um, there's this stumbling block. There's a philosophical objection that does create like an intellectual stumbling block where then you don't really get much more of a hearing about Jesus. And if that's you this morning, let me remark briefly. The way this objection is often phrased is something along the lines of, and we talked about this before, I preached a sermon on this a few years ago, but evil's existence must disprove God. Like the existence of what we see in these first two verses must disprove God because it must mean that either God is not powerful, which would make him not godlike, or he's not good. At the very least, he's apathetic. At the worst, he's malevolent. So again, 
you wouldn't be able to refer to him as the greatest being that could possibly be conceived if he's apathetic or malevolent or weak. So he's not God. So therefore, um, take your pick is the idea. Like, which one is it? Which God do you serve? The apathetic, the malevolent, or the weak and powerless? He wants to change it, but he can't. Um, that's the idea. There's evil in the world. Why doesn't he stop it? But where this falls short, and, and I should say, like, there are a lot of even agnostic philosophers. Over the last 20 years, a lot, of, a lot has been written on this. And there are even agnostic philosophers who say, yeah, that problem of evil, it's not really as strong as people often imagine at first glance, right? Why? Because where it falls short is to even consider the possibility that in its premise, God actually might have a good reason for allowing evil as hard as it is to understand. Like Alvin Plantinga talks a lot about this. He's a philosopher out of Notre Dame um, who's been helpful to me. Tim Keller has a chapter on this in The Reason for God. I'd really encourage you to read it if you've ever struggled with this question. But the idea is, like, if God has a good reason for allowing it, he could allow it without being weak, malevolent, or apathetic. He could be doing it out of his great glory that we see in the text, and even his love and mercy, okay? Now, where this breaks down is where we say, all right, so what is it? Like, what's the reason? You're saying God has a reason, so, so wouldn't we know it? Like, it breaks down with this idea that if there is a reason, we'd know about it, we'd know for sure what the reason could be, but just like it's not inconceivable that God could have a good reason to allow evil, it's even less inconceivable that we might not actually know what the reason is. Like, it's not difficult to imagine that if God, in infinite and eternal wisdom, had a good reason for allowing it that finite beings who live a handful of decades in a very narrow scope of human history that's informed by all kinds of very specific cultural moments based on where we were born and what, what culture we're growing up in, that we wouldn't actually have a full understanding of what that reason is. And so the challenge here is twofold. First, if you're a Christian and you have friends who have brought up this objection to you, I just encourage you, stop trying to give the reason. Not, not in its full sense, like human sin, right? Certainly a reason. But God has in the past protected people from the, the outcomes of sin to protect his people. Um, creating people with free will so that they might choose. That's part of the reason. Although, like, free will isn't the kind of good that you just let people do whatever they, like, a, a parent doesn't allow a child to run into the street unconstrained because we value their free will, right? Like, we'll actually restrain it at times in order to protect. So it's like, there are all kinds of reasons we could postulate. I think some of them probably serve as part of the answer from a limited perspective, but I think all of them really break down. So instead, my encouragement to you is when you get to verses like this, whether you yourself struggle with them in your own time in the Word or whether your friends do, don't rush to give an answer. Like, I think we're on, instead of trying to give a reason to yourself, to others, I think we're on more solid ground quoting the parts of Scripture that tell us we could never possibly understand or comprehend the ways and mind of God. We shouldn't rush to give an answer to everything, and I think as Christians, that's the temptation, right? Um, sometimes we don't know. But just because we don't know a reason doesn't mean there isn't one. That would be kind of arrogant for me to, to, to think as a Christian, right? Um, so second, the challenge is to skeptics, for whom this might be a stumbling block. And what I'd encourage you to do if you're skeptical this morning, if you're not sure about this, to just... Press pause and put it aside, right? So, like, can you acknowledge, just acknowledge your limited understanding and the possibility that if God exists, 
he might have a good reason that you're not aware of. Opening the possibility for you to set it aside, to not have that question tied up in a bow, but to hear more about the nature of God, to hear more about Jesus and his ultimate answer to that question, which leads me finally to the point that while we can't know in its entirety what the reason is, the Christian actually is assured that God has such a good reason for allowing evil because we, that's the point in Zechariah. In Zechariah we see he doesn't, he doesn't actually exempt himself from it. He didn't allow it for us while exempting himself. Many deities do in various world religions, but not the Christian God. He, he didn't in his sovereignty gather the nations to rage against us, but not against him. The book of Acts says that the nations were gathered together to rage against the Lord and his anointed one. He was the shepherd who went into the slaughterhouse. He didn't just allow it. He went in. He endured um, unspeakable violent evil at the hands of violent and evil men, and even bore the consequences of that evil upon his shoulders for people. He stepped into it. So I think Christians can be very confident that there is a good reason. This is the reality of human sin. So in addition to stepping into the evil, to take it upon himself for his people, what we see next then is that he doesn't allow the evil to remain. Praise the Lord. He doesn't allow it to remain. That's what brings us from the reality of human sin, secondly now to the return of the king. Reality of human sin, return of the king. Verses 3 through 5. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the mount shall move northward, the other southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, we're pretty sure that's a city east of Jerusalem, quite a ways. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah the king. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So here we see a stunning portrayal of God's return. His ultimate return in which his enemies who had grown complacent with his absence, who are doing the e perpetrating the evil that we read about in the first two verses, now say... Uh-oh. Because he now comes in person to fight on behalf of his people. Which is interesting because prior sections of Zechariah up to this point so far, if you remember, have given us other accounts of the ridding of evil in this world. But so far, like, what that's looked like in the text is always God utilizing some person as an agent of judgment. But here at the end of the book, it's like God himself returning out of the heavenlies. He personally returns. He comes to fight. And there's no question then about who will be victorious. His feet stepping out of the heavenlies splits the mountains in two, you know. His return makes way for his people then through that valley to escape evil that he creates all the way to the east. And again, he, he brings to mind a past event to talk about a future hope, right? Like this earthquake in the days of Uzziah. It's actually talked about in two other sections in the Old Testament, that left quite an impression on God's people. They're still telling stories about it. He's like, let me, let me use that as a picture of the earth-shattering nature of the future glorious return of the king to fight for his people. This is what it looks like. And listen, we've, we've been hearing 
throughout Zechariah, the, the, the hearers of this prophecy during Zechariah's day have been hearing this proclamation that the enemies of God who do great evil in the world will be done away with from the very beginning of the book. You remember, like, in chapter 1, the very first vision, we see this outcry, this lament from the lead writer. And what's the outcry? That the nations are at rest. Right? There's an outcry to judge the nations. Strike them down. Strike down those who oppose God and his people. And throughout the book, we've seen it again and again. And you can imagine it being received through a lens of skepticism for a people who are under Babylonian oppression and then Persian oppression and then Greek oppression and then Roman oppression and starting to think, will this ever happen like we've talked about, right? And perhaps even the enemies of God themselves have heard these pronouncements and think, nah, we're fine. We're safe. This return of the king business, it's a myth. It's a legend. It's empty words. It's empty religion. Religiosity. Yeah, until the king comes back. You know, like, it reminds me of Jesus' parable, not in a completely congruent way, but his parable of the tenants in Mark 12, in which this man plants this vineyard. He cares for it. He puts a fence around it, a watchtower, you know, a wine press. Um, images that we actually see in Isaiah 5 connected to Israel and the people of God. But then he has to depart from it. And so other tenants take control of the vineyard, so he sends a servant to get fruit from his vineyard. They beat him mercilessly. So he sends another, they strike him in the head and shame him, send him away. He sends another, they kill him. He has left his son. He says, they're not going to kill my son. Sends his son to them, they kill him too, planning to get the inheritance. And Jesus asks at the end of this, what will the owner of the vineyard do, you know? Because it's pretty clear by the behavior of the guys who are in charge of this vineyard that they don't actually think he's ever coming back. You know, like they're not, they're not intimidated at all by this guy. Well, they're wrong. The maker of the vineyard returns. Jesus says he will come and destroy them. Like they're thinking maybe he died. Maybe he's sick. He's, he's never coming back. No. He will come and destroy them. That's the idea here. There have been predatory shepherds from within and without Israel over God's people who've grown complacent in the idea that the return of the king is simply a myth. Zechariah says, beware, it's no myth. He's coming himself. He's coming in person. His, his very presence will shatter. It's like an earth-shattering return in which he will be victorious. You know, Tolkien picks up on these kinds of images and parables in his own final work on Lord of the Rings trilogy, much of which, as we talked about, was like, inspired by Zechariah, like language and images in Zechariah. And we see like this king is prophesied to return to the throne of Gondor to make all things right, to defeat the enemies once and for all. But there's this broken line that needs to be restored. There's this broken blade that needs to be remade to fight against the enemy. You know, and, um, but the king's prophesied to return, the, the blade is prophesied to be remade, but nobody believes it, least of all the enemies of Gondor, until the king holding that blade finally does return and uses it bringing judgment. So what we find in Zechariah is the lead writer who's crying out in chapter one for God to come and do this act, for, for him to rid the world of evil. Now he shows up, you know, to do the very thing he was crying out, to bring, to bring judgment, to bring salvation to God's people. So we see the reality of human sin, the return of the king, in which like there's grace involved here. He's not going to allow evil to abide forever. And that leads us to then a recognition of his kingship. And this is where things are different, you know, from the past, because there's been a work on the, the heart of the people of God to, to where things look and feel different. We see this recognition in several statements in verses 6 through 11. All these statements begin with this clause, there shall be, there shall be, there shall be. 
which we see God's kingship, his authority, his sovereignty, his rule, recognized by God's people. So, verse 6. On that day there shall be no light, coal, frost. There shall uh, be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at the evening there shall be light. Okay, it brings to mind, potentially, Joshua, the sun standing still. Also brings to mind the end of Revelation, in which, like, the king returns, and he is the light, right? And so there's Various ways this text is handled and interpreted across a lot of different commentaries, but all of them, I think, in the end are similar in that they demonstrate that God's return, it's not some isolated event in one part of the world, you know? It's not some isolated event for one group of people. But rather, as one commentary says, it disrupts the whole created order, you know? Disrupts the whole created order. On that day, verse 8, Living water shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. So do you remember 13.1? Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, the day Christ dies for his people, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So Zechariah is telling the people he's writing to, there will be a future day, a first advent, like for us it's a previous day in which Christ dies for his people past action of Christ dying on our behalf at the cross makes it possible for his living waters to now flow from his presence from his people forever for us to have life in him forever life that begins now and goes on for all eternity and again we read this kind of imagery in Revelation 21 so again okay his sovereignty his rule his kingship it's recognized if we doubt that that's the purpose of this text look at verse 9 the theological center of the whole chapter and the Lord will be king over all the earth. You know, like, his kingship is recognized, it's apparent, it's evident. His kingship extends to everything. Do you remember the language that Zechariah uses? He's the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of armies. He's the Lord of all the earth, right? So, on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. I don't think this is referring to, like, God's unity, three in one kind of a thing. In terms of his being, I think it's talking about he's the only true God. That's the primary primary point it's making like there are no rivals to his kingship for us all the time you know we leave here on a Sunday morning and we go out into the world and there's all these rival gospels that are just bombarding our hearts in various ways as we turn on media listen to podcasts especially go on social media we're just being bombarded with rival versions of gospels that are sometimes so insidious that we can't even recognize them but in the end he's unrivaled Crown him the unrivaled king, as we're about to sing in a little bit. Um, okay, the whole land, verse 10, shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem shall remain aloft in its sight from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepress. All of it is the idea. It shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Do you remember when we talked about how God desired to like be the wall, to, for, for God himself to be the wall surrounding God's people, that he would be the one, the, the protector of God's people, ultimately? We talked about it here in Zechariah, we talked about it in Revelation a bit, and um, we talked about it in Nehemiah. And it's interesting because like that's what God's wanted for his people all along, but, but God wasn't the reason that it didn't happen. Like It wasn't God that resisted it, it was his people. Why? Because they didn't trust him. And that's the point that Zechariah is contrasting here. From the very beginning. Like, 
They didn't trust God. They didn't want God to be their ultimate source of wisdom in the garden. They wanted to be their own source of wisdom. So they end around God. They didn't want to be God to be their provider in the wilderness. They longed to go back to Egypt. You know, they were talking about how, yeah, remember when we were slaves living the good life? And there were these big pots of meat we would sit around. They're lying to themselves. Why? Because they don't trust God. They don't trust him to be their provider. They're, they're actually taking more than what they needed of what God provides, when he provides. Why? Because they don't trust him as provider. They didn't want him as king over Israel. They weren't satisfied with that. They wanted instead to have a king like the nations, mighty in battle, seated on a throne like the nations, even though God himself we all know. right? It's mightier in battle than any earthly king. Having him seated on the throne would be so good for his people, but we rejected him for a worldly means and method of kingship. Why? Because we didn't trust God. But here we see this picture of what God wanted to do for his people all along. And it's happening. And here we see what we find is really a changed heart in which God's people now, they trust the Lord. They worship him. And that's actually what brings us to finally, number four, the result of his work. This is in 12 through 21. I'm not going to read through this section in part because I, I think we can get bogged down with details that aren't related to the main point. In particular, details that we already covered in Revelation related to what will this final battle and this return of Jesus specifically be like. I don't think that's what Zechariah is trying to answer. I think he's trying to show us the end result of the Lord's work. So here's what, all right. Let me point out the primary issue. We see this contrast between, you know, judgment and salvation, right? Those who know God, and Paul talked about this last week, those who know God and those who are deserving of wrath because they stand opposed to him, right? We see these plagues from the Lord against the wicked in which eyes are like rotting out of the sockets and tongues are rotting out of mouth. Like the horrid acts that they've insisted on doing unto others now comes upon them in judgment. And yet the remnant of God's people who withstood trial and tribulation by faith in what he's done, they have, they have salvation. Like There's judgment for the wicked, and that's, that's good, right? There's salvation for God's people, which becomes the primary focus. They go up to worship him. They're reminded of his kingship over them, even when they were in the desert because they... They go up observing this feast of booths which they celebrated in part to remember God's provision in the desert and the whole earth is set apart as holy. The bells on the horses are set apart as holy. The pots from the temple are going forth demonstrating everything is holy. The traitors are driven out of the temple. Why? Because it all belongs to the Lord. Like, it's the result of his work. In the end, we come to find that while moralistic self-reliance has always led and will always lead, Everyone to disappointment because we can't make ourselves that which we are not. Despite how hard we strive toward it, despite how badly we desire it, we have a God who can be trusted. He can be trusted. He's the one who brings transformation and he gives it in the person of Jesus Christ. So that not only can we find something outside of us to put our ultimate hope in, but that something outside of us actually has power to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Zechariah tells us throughout the book that the answer to this disappointment is found in this promised shoot, this promised one who's to come in a first advent to die for his people as a substitute, rising again, inviting us into new life, but who will then come again in a second advent to rid the world of evil, sin, suffering, and death for all time. And so you might say, Zechariah, you know, like the readers of the text for sure, 
You know, the readers of Zechariah, especially in the first century, they're like, Zechariah, tell us, who is the Christ? Who is he? You know, and the answer to that would come 500 years later. The Apostle John would write a gospel account that's tied in so many ways to these themes and images, specifically in chapter 14. I guess it's uncanny. Jesus' work is tied to the Feast of Tabernacles in John's gospel as the ultimate fulfillment of it. In John's gospel, Jesus claims to be the light of the world, alluding back to what the experience that we see here in chapter 14. Early in John's gospel, Jesus drives out the traitors of the temple. That's the last verse of Zechariah. In John's gospel, Jesus makes an offering of living water to those who are far from him, to those who are far off and cast out. Living water that we read about at the end of Zechariah in chapter 14. In John's gospel, we see that he calls himself the true shepherd, the same true shepherd that Zechariah has already mentioned throughout the book. Rather than the false shepherds, the predatory shepherds, he's the true shepherd. And when he speaks, his people hear his voice and he knows them and they follow him. He changes their hearts. Would you join us next week as we begin this journey of hearing the voice of our true shepherd in John's gospel, which was written according to John's own words. That's actually where we're going to start. We're going to, we're going to go progressively through, right? One, one through the end of the book. But next week, we're actually going to start in chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. And we're going to see John say, you want to know why this was written? So that you might know who the Christ is. The very answer that the readers of Zechariah wanted so badly. Why? Because his completed work changes everything for us. You know, like what he's done at the cross and the hope that we have in what he will come to do changes everything because no more do we have to rely on our own faulty, fleeting efforts, our finicky, feeble efforts to, to make change and transformation, but rather we can be transformed through the blood that was shed for us, the body that was broken. We can have unity together as his people. We can have favor with the Lord. And so this meal that we observe weekly points us to that gospel. If you're here and you're a Christian, what we observe, this meal, it's for you. For you to proclaim to one another the death of Christ, what he's done on your behalf. If you're, if you're a friend or visitor who, you know, you're, you're here and you're a skeptic, we welcome you. We'd love for you to continue to be a part of Gospel Life Church. We'd ask you to observe by asking questions. Participate by, by observation. And um, so I invite you forward now to come and take these elements with you back to your seat that we might remember this together.